0: If I were to ask you this morning, what is the most common human experience? The answer would not be love, would not be hate, but rather the answer would be fear. It seems that humans need no training in how to be experts in fear. We come into the world as professionals. For most of us, it occurs to us very early in life that there are bad people, that there are bad creatures. Sometimes they hide under the bed, bad circumstances, and a whole lot more bad that we don't even know about. Admittedly, there are a lot of bad things that none of us want to be a part of, but we have to come to grips with the fact, don't we, that we will never eliminate all the bad things in this world. We must resist the notion that we can prohibit every bad outcome or that we can prohibit Every sharp corner, or that we could ever live in a world that's not dangerous in a hundred ways. In fact, it's truly worse for any of us that we can realize because Ephesians 6 tells us that we also battle against principalities and powers in high places that we've never seen. It turns out there's more bad than we can even imagine. And we don't have any ability apart from Jesus Christ to influence any of that. So this morning we're going to examine Isaiah chapter 41, and we're going to see once again, and this is a truth that's all over the Bible, that we are to rely in our fears, not on ourselves, but on our God. And as it turns out, God is greater than kings and princes. He's greater than armies. He's greater than nature. He's even greater than the idols of man. So I want to invite you to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 41 and we'll read there in a moment. You'll recall that uh, we have already read Isaiah 40 a week ago and we concluded there with one of the most famous verses in the Old Testament where the scripture says in verse 31, they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength, they shall mount up with wings like eagles, They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. So Isaiah 40 ends with Isaiah reminding his people, the people of God, that God's empowerment is supernatural. There's only one way to make old men youthful. Turns out there's not a fountain in Florida. It requires supernatural strength. So in our human weakness, even the faint and the weak and, yes, the fearful, will mount up with wings like eagles and will run and not be tired. You know, as I've said often, that much of the Bible is about conflict. It's about threats, fears, failure, sin, wars, and evil people doing evil things. Have you ever noticed that the Bible is a pretty depressing record of humanity? It is. I'm always tickled when folks want to convince us that somehow it's worse today than it's ever been. Don't ever make that statement because it just means you've never read the Bible. It was so bad years ago That God sent a flood and killed every person except eight. So let's be careful when we resort to hyperbole that we don't go too far. It's been bad. And it's been bad a lot of times. And the Bible is full of bad. So the Bible is about all of this. But there's no end to Pollyanna historians who want to suggest that there was, back in the day, a golden age of righteousness. But I would suggest to you that if you read the Bible carefully, you'll find that the only golden age of righteousness occurred in the Garden of Eden. And there were only two people, and even they couldn't handle it. They found a way to mess it up. Because bad things just sort of follow all of us around. So we're constantly in need of an antidote for all this badness. And the answer is hope. Hope. I would suggest to you that faith and love get most of the airplay in our hearts. We talk about being people of faith. Churches talk about it all the time, rightly so. We just sang about it. That song we just sang is all about believing the promises of God. They're yes and amen. Why? Because we need the hope that there's better. There's more happening here than we can see, more happening here that we can understand. There's wisdom in the midst of all the lack of wisdom, or seemingly so. So we're constantly in need of hope. Politicians talk about it. Beauty products sell it. Realtors sell it. Timeshare managers sell it. Financial planners sell it, and yes, even huckster preachers have peddled a little snake oil along the way. Why? Because we all want hope, every last one of us. We want to hope for better and more, and we want to hope for more joy, and we're tired of not having joy, tired of not having a fearless life, because fear just kind of oozes out of us. So this morning we're going to read about a chapter or read through a chapter in Isaiah where Isaiah is contending with a lack of hope and he pictures as it were the rock of hope this being God over against the wannabe marketers of hope in his day. Our problem is not that we're not looking for hope, but our problem is truly that we're looking for hope in all the wrong places to borrow and modify, dare I say, improve on a country song. So I want to encourage you to read with me Isaiah 41. If you turn there, you'll recall that Isaiah 40 and following all the way through the end of the book, 66 chapters, is... A time of prediction. Most prophecy in the Bible is not prediction. But this section, a very long section of 27 chapters, is all prediction. Isaiah did not live long enough to see any of this occur. He is predicting that one day God will bring up, if you will, a new king, a new opponent to the folks that that wrought havoc amongst his people, Babylon. He's going to replace Babylon with, rather, he's going to replace Assyria with Babylon. And uh, then he's going to bring in the Medes and the Persians, and the Persians are going to overrule Babylon. And eventually the Persians are going to supervise the return of God's people to his land. We know of the Old Testament narrative of this. If you've ever read the book of Ezra, you've ever read the book of Nehemiah in many of the minor prophets deal with the return from exile the babylonians are overrun by the persians and the great king of persia who did all of that is named in the book of isaiah two centuries two centuries before he was even born So his name is Cyrus, and he's going to be referred to here in the second verse. So from the opening of the gate here in Isaiah 41, he's going to reference a coming king who's going to help God's people. His reference there is to Cyrus, the great, the ancient king of Persia. He's not even alive yet when Isaiah pins these words. There's, by the way, parenthetically, if I could chase a rabbit... The Jewish historian Josephus, who wrote in the second century A.D. after Christ of the ancient history of Israel, reports that when Cyrus, the king of Persia, read the book of Isaiah, which had been written some two centuries before, when he read the book of Isaiah, he was delighted to see that, uh, if you will, the God of Israel had written about him. But he was never so delighted as to actually be a convert to the God of Israel. But we're going to read now in chapter 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach, then let them speak. Let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Who, rather, he gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely. By paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brothers, "If I might paraphrase here, hang in there, brother. Be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and he who smooths with the hammer him who strikes the anvil, saying of the soldiering, it is good. We've got a great army. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant, Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you by my righteous right hand." Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing as all. For I, the Lord, your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm Jacob, you men of Israel, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. I'll stop there momentarily. I want to make four points, if I might, this morning in these verses that will help us. Let me offer one caveat from the outset. I said a week ago in a different kind of way, I want to say again. Many people read the Old Testament and they say that is, that is historically so different The context means nothing to me. I can't read the Old Testament and find any traction for my own life. And I don't understand why we would read the Old Testament because the Old Testament has nothing to do with now. We're literally millennia in the future from this this time period. And what has any of this got to do with me in my circumstance? Well, let me, if I might encourage you dare I say, even coach you a little bit. It's true. It's true that the circumstances of some 2,500 years ago are not your circumstances or my circumstances. There's a list about as long as my leg of reasons why the circumstances are not duplicatable in our lives today. But the principles, the point is not the history. The history is just, if you will, the platform upon which the principle lives. The principle is what we're trying to get to. And the principle is certainly valid. The principle is certainly true. And I would urge you this morning to hear and read these verses and contend, not with the narrative per se, not get lost in that story, but rather to say, all right, that story indicates something about God and it indicates something about man. Now God never changes and men are always changing, and yet men are always staying the same. It turns out that the predicament of Israel or Judah, the southern kingdom, that we read about in the book of Isaiah is our predicament. Now, we are not the same. Different geography, different chronology, different timestamp, so to speak. All these things are different, but yet we are the same. Their predicament is our predicament. We have wandered from God and we find ourselves disappointed in the way God has shepherded us or loved us or cared for us or protected us or insulated us. And we wonder, why do these things happen to people who are trying so hard to be godly? Allegedly. Maybe we are not. Maybe we are. Maybe there is, a, if you will, a remnant of people who are truly trying to be godly, seeking to be godly. They read the scripture, they heed the warnings, and they say, I will not be counted amongst those who wander away from God. Instead, I will remain resolute in my affections for God, and I will not be uh, torn aside to unfaithfulness, that I'll be committed to God. Maybe that's who we are. Maybe we are the remnant. But I remind you, whether you're the righteous remnant or you're the unrighteous, masses, All of Israel, all of Judah is deported. The notion that God protected the righteous while he was judging the unrighteous is not found in the book of Isaiah. After all, who's the most famous Jew that was deported? Daniel. You know, he had some buddies. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Were these men unfaithful? Were these men unrighteous? No. They were part of the righteous remnant. They were faithful, and yet they end up in another country. Daniel never returned to Israel. I don't know where Daniel was buried, but I'm pretty sure it's in the sands of Babylon. So you may say, well, God owes me. God has to. God must, and the reality is no, he doesn't, but he will ultimately, and he might temporally. He might shepherd you now if, if it fits that which he is doing, but what we see here in the book of Isaiah chapter 41 is that God is going to bring up a king that nobody's ever heard of because he's not even born yet. And he's going to take this king, Cyrus, and going to raise up a nation, Persia, and Persia is going to eat up the Babylonians, and all the people that the Babylonians have heretofore eaten up are then going to be set free. Cyrus, as it turns out, becomes a king who decides that he doesn't want all these people to be his subjects. He wants them to send them back to their countries because he doesn't want to fool with all the problems of managing all of these slaves. Now that, that may be a foreign idea to most kings, but it was not a foreign idea to Cyrus, So God raises up a man who is friendly toward God's purposes and serves God's purposes by returning Israel to their homeland. God's doing all of this and it is mysterious to us who live on the earth. If you're one of the players, if you will, one of the people that God is going to return home, it's mysterious because you're not used to Kings responding in the way they are. But the point of Isaiah 41 is I raised that guy up because he's doing what I want done even though he doesn't know me even though he doesn't love me so there's four things that stand out in this chapter at least that we're going to make uh, emphasis on this morning I want to show you these quickly number one God is sovereign over history and all the people that make history and that includes you and all the history makers around you So God is sovereign over you and your stuff and your people, and God is doing things in your life and in my life and in our time that we don't understand. And Cyrus is exhibit A. Verse 2, he asked this question rhetorically. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? Let me rephrase that. Who raised up this king in the east who never loses? What kind of king never loses? (laughs) The world writes books about them. They call them great, like Alexander. Those are the kind of kings that never lose. He asks this question, verse 2, Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He answers the question in verse 4, I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Who's in charge of these history makers? God. God's in charge. Turns out God's in charge of these things that we're not in charge of. I'm not in charge of kings and kingdoms and princes. I'm not in charge of all these things that God is going to do. So he tells us the application in verse 10. Fear not, I am with you. Fear not, I am your God. Fear not, I will help you. Verse 13, he says it again in case you weren't paying attention. Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Verse 14, he says it a third time in case you weren't paying attention. Fear not, I am the one who helps you. I would urge you to make application of that for your own life. Fear not, I am the one who helps you. Our problem is not that we don't have trials. Our problem is not that we don't have problems. Our problem is that in the midst of our challenges, in the midst of our problems, in the midst of our difficulty, we forget the one who actually has the resources to change that, to improve that, to recalibrate that, to come to our aid. We forget our God. This must not be. What the world needs now is not love, sweet love, What the world needs now is a people of God who actually have not forgotten their God. And don't forget their God. When the going gets tough, we drill down into God. We anchor deeper into God. We are resolute in our affections for God. We will not abandon God since we're in the context of ancient Babylon. The two circumstances we just mentioned, Daniel His interactions with a pagan king, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, their interactions with a pagan king. What do they do when the fire gets hot and the lions are starved? What do they do? They don't jump ship. They don't cry, poor, pitiful me. They don't curse God and die. They don't do any of those things, they don't even show fear. Extraordinary. Oh, that we could be like those people. My, God help me, God help you, God help us, that we would be like that. We we revere those men, not because they are different than us. We revere them because they are the same as us. And yet, there are men of courage. And there are men who lean into their God and say, I'm walking with God. And if walking with God means we go into the fire, we go into the fire. We will not give up our testimony. We will not give up our witness. We will not give up the credibility and affection that we have for our God. He is able, but he is not required to save us. He concludes there in verse 14 and says, I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. The word Redeemer uh, is an interesting word in the Hebrew language. Uh, there are t- actually two words for Redeemer. This is the more common word, and it means the one who rescues. God is the one who rescues. He does indeed. I am the one who rescues you. Your your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. This is, as we've said before, one of Isaiah's favorite terms. That particular phrase, the Holy One of Israel, is used seven times, rather 27 times in the Old Testament, and 25 of those 27 times used in Isaiah. It is Isaiah's most favorite term for God, the Holy One of Israel. I remind you that this is the point, isn't it? God is holy and his people are not. That's the reason they're in the pickle they're in. God is at work through the affairs of men, even the sinful affairs of men, to bring about a resolution of redemption. God's purpose in your life today is to not only rescue you, but to see to it that his rescue of you holds. It's not a temporary rescue. It is an eternal rescue. God intends for his rescue of you to hold, to last, to to be extended, not just through this life, but beyond even death. We rejoice that our Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel, who's greater than the kings of the earth, as powerful as they may be. And at the time of this writing, there is no more powerful king than Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon. But it turns out even Nebuchadnezzar is a short timer. There is, there is a, as it were, there's a calendar attached to his name. And he's not going to forever be the strongest power on earth. He's not. Because God's going to raise up another. And he describes him there in verse 2. He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot, makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. He's an imperialistic king. He's going to come in. He's going to run over roads that he's never traveled before. He's just going to keep going. And that's precisely what Cyrus does. And he, he is the great king of Persia. And God uses this man who doesn't even know him, doesn't even exist at the time of this writing, to prove that God is sovereign over history. And why does God say this? Why does God care that we hear this? Because he wants us to fear not. Don't be afraid. We don't have to be afraid of the purposes of God, the plans of God, the goodness of God. We don't have to be afraid that God has somehow lost his grip on us he knows us he loves us he cares for us and he's at work in ways that admittedly are mysterious but we know where they're going and we know what he's doing we know this god there's a second thing that we see and we see it more clearly in verse 5 god is greater than any substitute or surrogate look at verse 5 The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They've drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, Be strong! Be strong! And there's this threat of this impending king. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes the anvil. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith, and the goldsmith strengthens the craftsman and says of the soldering, It is good They strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. Cannot be moved. (laughs) Yeah. What we need is we need to drill into our own resources. That's what these enemies of God would say. God has an answer for them. Look at verse 21. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proof, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them. Tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what's to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. In other words, you, you bring out your, your gold idols. You bring out your, your surrogate god. You bring out your wannabe god. So let's just interview your god here for a moment. That's what he's doing here in verse 21. Let's interview your god. Let's ask him this question. What's about to happen? If you can tell us what's about to happen, we'll know that you have credibility. But if you can't tell us what's about to happen, we know you're a liar. And we know that you're a fake. We know that you're a charlatan. So he mocks them, Is what he does, in verse 21, 22, 23. Verse 23, do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Okay. We're mocking you. Do something about it. Do good, do harm, so that we may know that you have power. We're we're mocking you. Do something about it. Isaiah's picking a fight with pagan gods, a bit like Elijah on Mount Carmel. Hundreds of prophets of Baal gather around one measly, solitary prophet of God. And for hours and hours and hours, they... These prophets of Baal begin to cut themselves and cry out to their God, calling down rain, fire from heaven, so forth. None of this happens. All they ended up doing is basically bleeding all over the place. Elijah steps up, prays. God sends fire. Game over. In other words, these so called gods talk a good game but they don't deliver. And there are many competing gods in our lives today. They don't look like, for the most part, idols covered in gold. They don't look like that at all. But they look like ideologies and they look like philosophies. And they look like worldly pursuits and they look like worldly ideas. And they look like all of these things that bring down our confidence in God and cause us to hope in a thousand other things, whatever they may be. But ultimately, these things don't, Satisfy, they find out they, they they have eyes but they don't see, they have ears, but they don't hear, they have mouths, but they don't speak, they have tongues, but they utter not a single noise. Why is that? Because they are not God. They are not. They're not the one who's from the first and will be with the last. They are not. God is greater than any substitute or surrogate. This is the problem that we contend with in our lives. We don't live 2,500 years ago. We live now, but our problems are identical. And that is that we have a tendency in the midst of the difficulties of our lives to forget our God. And when we forget our God, it's game on. There's no end to roads that lead away from God. And there's no end to pits of destruction that we can find ourselves into. We can find ourselves there because these things are available. They are ready. They're available right now in our culture. And we can find ourselves in, as it were, the miry clay of these pits because these things are appealing to us. They seem reasonable to us. But at, if you will, with, with some inspection, with some wisdom on the part of, of us or those who counsel us we will see that those are dead ends that those are roads of destruction we must not go into those pits we must stay away from those things there is a way that seems right to man that way is broad and the gate is broad and there are many on that road but there is a way that is right unto God and that way is narrow and narrow is that gate and few there are that find it may i remind you that God intends for us to stay on this narrow way and enter by means of the narrow gate the narrow gate is Christ alone apart from Christ we will not find The antidote for our fears, the antidote for our sorrows, the antidote for our discouragement, whatever it may be. Instead, only in Christ, only in the Holy One of Israel, only in the Redeemer who loves us and cares for us, who is at work in our situation, even in the situations that are incredibly perplexing. Like Isaiah and the deportation of the entire nation of the people of God. God is greater even when he's judging, even when it seems that God has failed, even when it seems that God is not keeping his promise. The key word there is seems. God is greater than any substitute. Let us not forget that. There's a third thing. God is greater even than nature. This is so important. I hope you'll see this with me. Look at verse 17. He is greater than nature. Notice what he says. When the poor and needy seek water and there is none, and their tongue is parched, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. So there's the setting. People are hurting. People are thirsty. Uh, people are, if you will, depressed. They're they're socially depressed. They're economically depressed. They're physically depressed. They're under this attack, as it were. So when the poor and needy seek water and there is none, people are broke. People are destitute. People are without hope. What does God do? Verse 18, I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. It's interesting, uh, Dr. Park made this when we were doing our Old Testament workshop last year, he made this point very, very vividly clear with, with photos. I don't have any photos this morning, but I, I remember his illustration, so I'll repeat it. In America, when we think of wilderness, we think of sort of like the alaskan yukon canadian yukon we think just miles and 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 miles of green trees and no roads no cell service wild animals no people wilderness that's what americans think wilderness is but nobody in israel thinks that's a wilderness wilderness They think that's ancient Lebanon. Lebanon's where all the trees are. There are no trees in Israel, for the most part. No forests. In fact, notice what he says here, verse 18 I'll open rivers on the bare heights. You know what a mountain looks like in Israel? It looks like sand. You know what a wilderness is in Israel? It's a desert. There's no water. There are no trees. There's no shade. Very little life and there's no people. And God says, when the poor and needy seek water, where are you going to go for water? I know where I'll go. I'll go to the Canadian Yukon. There's lots of rivers there. Well, great. You're right. You'll find water there. But you won't find them in Israel. Because you go to a mountain in Israel... You're going to be alone in the dirt. And there's no water. But he says in verse 18, I will open rivers out of that mountain, fountains in the midst of the valleys, and I'll make the wilderness a pool of water and dry land, springs of water. And I'll put in the wilderness the things that are not there. I'll make Israel look like the Canadian Yukon I'll put the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. And I'll set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together that they may see and know and may consider and understand. You see, God says, give attention to this. Think about this. He wants you to calculate what you're doing and what you're not doing, who you're looking to and who you're not looking to. He wants you to take inventory. He wants you to ask yourself, who am what and what am I looking to? Where are the resources? Where where are the, if you will, the confidants of my life? How do I find hope? And to what am I looking for that hope? God is challenging you. And he's telling you he is greater than nature. He's greater than the fact that this is a wilderness and this wilderness is a desert and there's no water. But don't be afraid of the wilderness because God's in charge of putting water in the desert. Don't be afraid of the desert because God's in charge of putting trees in the desert. Man cannot do this. Other gods, so-called, cannot do this. God is in charge of these things. God is in charge of taking care of you when it seems hard, when it seems impossible, when it seems contra. To everything you've ever taught or been taught or learned or, or, or shared with others or understood about culture or understood about nature or whatever, just remember this. God invented all that stuff. He knows how to put trees where there are no trees. He knows how to put water where there's no water. And he knows how to take care of you and me. He knows how to do all that. Fear not. Because I am with you. Fear not, you're going into the lion's den. I am with you. Fear not, you're going in the fiery furnace. I am with you. Fear not. Don't be afraid. Trust in God. Look to God. Hope in God. Rely on God. This is the battle we must fight every day of our lives. There's no let up. Every day. Just as soon as you think it's time to kick back and drink a Coke, you get a call. You get some news. You find a lump. And you don't know what to do. The message of Isaiah 41 is that God does not forget his people, he knows their situation. There's one last thing, quickly. Verse 29. Our God is not a delusion. He makes this point about the idols. Verse 29. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Our God is not that. Our God is a provider. Our God is a protector. Our God is a supply. Our God is a rescuer. Our God is a redeemer. He is the redeemer of his people. So no matter what comes, no matter how it comes, what shape it comes, what difficulty it comes packaged in, the Bible says that God is our non-delusion. Our God is not a delusion. Their works are nothing, but his works are everything. God is able. God is at work he is doing things after the counsel of his will in a way that we can't fully comprehend or understand but we trust him we believe in him we rely upon him because he has the only one who has the keys he has the keys the keys to life and to death to heaven and to hell He has the keys to resurrection, and he has entered that key into the lock, and he has condemned death to die. One of the most famous sermons of the Puritan era, some 400 years ago, preached by John Owen, is entitled, The Death of Death, The Death of Death. Jesus is the one who conquered death. Jesus is the one who continues to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. Jesus is the one who is raised as the exalted one who is our ultimate redeemer. He is the king of kings. He's greater than Cyrus. He's greater than Nebuchadnezzar. He's greater than all the turkey kings of Israel and Judah. He's greater than all of the so-called kings of today. He's greater than these idols. He's greater than the power of nature or the strength of nature or the strength of any other enemy you could name. He is greater than even the principalities and powers in high places that you and I have never seen or will never understand this side of glory. I have no idea what battle is raging in heaven today. I have no idea whether my life Or your life is in the crosshairs of Satan right now. I have no idea. But this is no time for the people of God to shirk back. This is the time for the people of God to stand up and to say, count me as going with God. And not going with anyone else. We want to follow God, trust God, be with God, hope in God. Our heart, like every other human heart, longs for hope. Lord, will you? Lord, can you? Lord, are you? His answer again and again is yes and amen. Yes and amen. Don't forget that today. There is only one who conquers death, and he is the Holy One of Israel, the Son of Almighty God. Look to him. He's the only hope we got. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us even today, allowing us to come and to be with your people. We are blessed, blessed beyond measure and full full of gratitude. We love you, Lord. We love your kindness for us, your care for us, your strength for us. We love, Father, that you will not forget us and that you will, no matter what happens in this life, mysterious or not, no matter what happens in this life, you will see us home. And we will cross one day, Father, the great divide, and we will enter into the true rest, the promised land of promised lands, and we will find there our peace. Till that day, Father, we are in the midst of a bit of a war. We war against the flesh and the lusts of the eyes, the lusts of the flesh and the pride of life. But we war with weapons of righteousness, with the weapons of heavenly armor. And we war, Father, against principalities and powers with the promised hope of victory. You are the God of gods, and we look to you today with thanksgiving. Thank you that Jesus has come to do battle for us, and he has won big. Let us not forget it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.